You know what high really is, dude? And yeah. at, the, at, the, at the end of the day, it's just a removal of the lower states of consciousness. You know, it's like when you get high, really what's happening is not that you're going higher. It's just that the lower's removed and you're just where you are. Our capacity for joy and ecstasy and connection to God and consciousness is already high, but it's just being in a human body with a personality and an ego and with all your instincts. It keeps you from permanently accessing that. And if you were truly in that state of kind of no mind, no body all the time, it would be difficult to function back in your meat suit. So it's like, I think that's where the plant medicines and and peak experiences like that come in. It's like you get a glimpse of what's on the other side, so to speak. That's Luke's story, and this is episode 285 of Wellness Force Radio. Wellness Force Radio, where we discover the physical and emotional intelligence to live life well. You can have the same brain states as someone who's done an hour of meditation every day for 40 years. There's a lot of losses that we go through, so the ability to be able to cope with those losses is very important to build skill in it, because loss will happen. You can be fatigued and depressed, right? So then the challenge is, what's the best order of operations for trying to help someone identify what the root cause of their problem is? Do you like yourself when you look in the mirror? What are you saying to yourself? What do you think about other people? How do you look at the tree? You know, you have to have spiritual courage to really grow spiritually because if you really want to take guidance from your soul, you have to be ready to realize that many of the things that you're asking for guidance on, your ego has some kind of an addiction to or an investment in. What's up? Hello. Welcome to Wellness Force. This is Josh Trent. And today is a beautiful day. We're fortunate. We are so fortunate to be here. Wherever you hear this, wherever you're listening to this, if you have breath in your lungs, if you have a roof over your head, if you have food to eat, you're doing better than millions, literally millions of people in the world. I've been feeling into this a lot lately, the power of gratitude. I mean, we all hear about this, right? In personal development, the power of gratitude. Some dude on a stage shaking his hands. But I've been stacking the actual frequency, the energy of being, capital B, being grateful in my morning practice. It's been huge. It's part of our M21 Wellness Guide. If you have not downloaded your free resource, this is my gift to you. We do a seven-day guided breathwork challenge and journaling and so much more. I promise you, if you follow this six-part guide for two weeks, you're going to notice a massive difference in how you feel in your body and your spirituality and in your emotions. Head over to wellnessforce.com forward slash M21. It's been downloaded by thousands of people. It is a resource for you because I just want to give. It feels good to give. You know, if you're a parent or if you're in health and wellness or if you're a coach or a therapist or a practitioner, or maybe you're just like that certain personality that loves to give to others, you know that sometimes the only challenge is knowing how much to give and also not having an expectation of having to receive something in return. Our guest on the podcast today knows all about this, the giving, the receiving, the gratitude. This is the one and only Mr. Luke Story, my friend, my podcaster in the field. Today, we're going to the jungle. You know that Guns N' Roses song? Welcome to the jungle. (laughs) Was that good? (laughs) We're going deep into the jungle in Guanacaste, Costa Rica. And we're also going to Luke Story's house in Los Angeles, where I got to meet with Luke Live and in person for the show, we talked about some incredibly challenging things, these thresholds that Luke dealt with in his adolescent life, drugs, addiction, abuse, how he transcended these things. This man has done the work, truly the work of breaking patterns of addiction and moving forward in his life. We also explore this concept that Luke talks about as shortening the cycles of recommitment. We talked about Byron Katie. We talked about God. (laughs) We talked about alcoholism, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela. 
We also talked about plant medicine and breathwork, how these tools, these ancient tools, support healing and self-empowerment in Luke and why Luke chose to head down to Rhythmia in Costa Rica to do his inner work. This episode was so fun, my friend. He, he walks his talk. Luke is actually a model of the things that he says. We got to sit in his backyard. I watched him go in the sun. I jumped on his trampoline uh, next to his ice bath. Then we did a biocharger session in his biohacking studio. We took some amazing supplements, which I believe were all legal. (laughs) Go to the show notes page at wellnessforce.com forward slash 285. Learn more about Luke. Get all the resources and the things we mentioned on the show today. Wellnessforce.com forward slash 285. Also, Huge shout, huge love, huge hug to our sponsor, LifeAid. This is official. I am 100% hooked on the FitAid RX. This is a sugar-free drink. It's for recovery. It's built to actually refeed your body with all the vitamins and nutrients it needs after you work out, like glutamine, glucosamine, branch chains, turmeric, CoQ10, full-spectrum B-complex. This is now my favorite drink after the gym or even after my nature hikes. I know you're going to love this too. I test everything that I give to our community and you get the ultimate hookup from LifeAid. This Zero and Zero RX, you can get $20 off. It's huge. 20 bucks off, 48 cans of the Zero and the Zero RX. This is the best discount. Really generous from our friends over at LifeAid Beverage Company. Get that 20 bucks off at wellnessforce.com forward slash zero. That's Z-E-R-O, wellnessforce.com forward slash zero. Support our friends who support this podcast and our wellness warrior path and also recover better. (laughs) Feel better after you work out. Now let's go live to LA to drop in with the former Hollywood celebrity fashion stylist, motivational speaker, kundalini yoga and meditation teacher, world-class biohacker and podcaster over at the Lifestylist podcast, the man, Mr. Luke Story. Luke Story, Josh Trent. Wow. What a day. Thank you for having me at your house, man. A meeting of the minds. This has been so fun with you biohacking, getting sun, learning about all these cool things that affect the body and the mind. But people have learned about you for a long time, man. How long have you actually been doing the podcast? It will be, let me see, what are we here? We're at May 24th. June 6th will be the three-year anniversary. So in three years, you started this always as the Lifestylist podcast? The Lifestylist podcast. Yeah. My first episode was June 6th, 2016. And uh, that one was called... Episode one was called Return of the Jedi Ooh. <laughs> because it was my, you know, like uh, my life story up until that point. And it was yes. kind of a story of redemption. And so I started out with that first episode and now I'm up to 200 something, yours included here yeah. shortly. And so, um, yeah, it's been a gift, dude, to be able to do Total what we gift. do. I mean, I don't have to explain it to you because you're yeah. a podcaster, yeah. but God, well, the opportunity to sit down and talk to the people that I've being able to do that with is just staggering. So the life stylist, is it because it's about the style of your life? I mean, is that really the ethos it's of the title? It's about building the ultimate lifestyle, whatever that means to you. Yeah. Um, using principles, truths, tools from all different modalities and teachings, whether that be metaphysical, spiritual, physical, and um, you know, just kind of how to build yourself into a superhuman real you. Yeah. And I think in the beginning, the name was kind of a play on my former career because I worked as a fashion stylist in Hollywood. For, We're going to get into that. For 17 yeah, we, years. We get to learn about that. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, I, I mean, really, I was doing that more superficial art, which is making people look good and going out and finding the best of the best. You know, you get this earring and this shoe and this dress, and you kind of put it together. This looks cool together. And that's what I've been doing, curating my own lifestyle for health and well-being and all that. 
And so I think I, in the beginning, I thought, well, I'm not, you know, now I'm not really a stylist anymore because I retired from that, but I'm a lifestylist. So you take, you know, this type of breath work and this cold plunge and this, you know, <laughs> oxygen therapy, the ozone IVs, the this, that, you put it all together yeah. and you have yourself, you know, a, a nice feeling life rather than a nice looking outfit. Also, this is what I get from you is I get that you are so in touch with the kid inside, the young man. Like, yes, you're a successful podcaster, businessman. You get shit done. You take care of things. So you have a masculine aspect to you. And you're very in touch with that youthful, kind of fun, playful kid in there. What did you do in your life that led you to actually connect with that kid? Because it seems like it's pretty present in everything that you do. The enjoyment aspect. Yeah. If it's not fun, why do it? You know, I, dude, I am, I do have a very childlike um, curiosity about mm-hmm. life, which I think mm-hmm. makes for creating good content because I'm, I'm earnestly curious about learning. Uh, I love learning, but I also just, I have a rambunctious sense of humor and I just really like to have fun. And I've thought about that because I think for my age, I'm pretty silly sometimes, <laughs> which I think is a great thing. I'm not putting myself down. But I thought, I wonder why I'm like that. I don't know that many people that like to goof around as much as me, but um, yeah. I think I really got it from my dad. You know, my dad is just, he's got coyote energy, you know, and um, he just always likes to screw around and have fun. Like when I was a kid, he used to do shit like we, he was a rodeo star. And so we used to travel around the West and Southwest in his dually diesel truck with a, a trailer of horses behind us rodeo star like he would wear the flashy pants with i mean no he and... i mean he no he was low-key he dressed like the marvel man but he was okay. you know he was a successful professional was ro- he kind of like a john wayne type kind of yeah, guy yeah, or... yeah 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 real rugged character but also a jokester so we would be on these long road trips and one of his favorites was if i had to pee we'd just you know we're on desolate desolate uh you know highways out in wyoming utah arizona colorado etc so I'd, oh, Dad, I got to pee, I got to pee. And we'd be nowhere near a gas station. So he'd pull over to the side of the road and then I'd step out and kind of open the door and use that as a shield so people couldn't see you if yes, they did I think drive we've by. Yes, that. Right? And so I'd be there and I'd be midstream and he'd just bolt. <laughs> just drive away <laughs> and just leave me standing yeah. there, you know? And it sounds like kind of a effed up thing to do to a kid, but it, yeah. it, it was, you know, it was all in fun. I mean, there were a lot of things that he did trying to have fun that maybe were a little harsh or scary because he was a you know, tough dude and yeah. could put up with a lot that I couldn't handle as a kid and stuff like was that. Was your mom also tough or was he more of like the heavier masculine energy, get shit done kind of energy in the home when you were young? Well, my parents divorced when I was two or three. And so I don't ever remember living with both of them. I lived with my mom and then I see my dad in the summers and holidays and stuff and uh, mom in California, dad in Colorado. My mom's also super funny though. You know, it's the thing. She has a great sense of humor and she screws around a lot. But in terms of who was, you know, my mom was much more lax and very liberal and born and raised in in the sixties in Berkeley. And so I could swear and, you know, just have fun and be a kid and things like that. And I don't know if my dad would have minded me swearing because he swore like a sailor himself, but he was into hunting and fishing and rodeos and like, you know, there's a firearm within three feet of anywhere he ever is. And, you know, he's a no nonsense kind of guy and was a pretty rugged character in his early years and fought a lot. And, you know, is now a completely um, enlightened human and has um, done a lot of work. But back then, yeah, he was kind of the, you know, good cop, bad cop. Dad would have been the bad cop. He was the one I was terrified of. So. You spent a lot of your childhood in Sonoma, NorCal. My grandparents, I was yeah. telling you, were from Garberville. So right. I have these fond memories of like being in nature in NorCal. And, and you seem to have this 
deep connection with nature. And it came from this childhood aspect of growing up in Sonoma, but yet it wasn't like perfect nature situation because at some point um, drugs got into the picture. And I think people see you now as being this voice for not just sobriety, but also um, for living your life on your own terms. But it wasn't like that for you in the beginning because there was an environment that for whatever reason, your soul, your soul contract, however you want to describe it, yeah. that, that environment was not conducive to the highest level of emotional intelligence, physical health. Um, can you take us to that environment? Because what year was that actually for you when, when they entered in? I think it was super young. I, w- I want to say like 10 years old. I've seen you talk about in media yeah. that drugs came into the picture. Yeah. And the reason we're talking about this, by the way, is to see where you are now and to explore the road that so many people find themselves on. Yeah. I mean, listen, dude, being in the throes of any kind of addiction, when you're held against your will, that's not a fun feeling. Now, if you're yeah. if you're unaware of the fact that you're held against your will, like many of us now are brainwashed by <laughs> collective media, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, and paying taxes and things like that. I mean, we are held against our will and we don't know it. So it doesn't hurt as bad when you start to wake up and kind of get red-pilled on our social programming. Um, it becomes more uncomfortable in one way, but um, most of us, I don't think, realize we're addicted until it's far too late when everyone else in the world and the authorities have to come in and say, hey, and kind of shake you and grab you by the jacket. Hey, dude, you know, you're screwing up here. Um, You know, it's just kind of all fun and games before that. But yeah, for me, I mean, it was just like a perfect storm. I grew up in the 70s and and 80s in Northern California. And um, in the late 60s, when Haight-Ashbury started to sort of go to pot, no pun intended, and it wasn't like, you know, LSD and the Grateful Dead anymore, but started more street drugs and crime and stuff like that. Uh, all the hippies kind of fled the Bay Area and San Francisco and moved out of the city into the country. And so where I was from in Sebastopol and Sonoma County and out in kind of the boonies, a lot of the hippies kind of went up there and grew weed and stuff like that. And there was a lot of bikers. There was a lot of um, biker gangs, Hells Angels and stuff. And so environmentally, drugs were really kind of woven into the culture there and were pretty normal. So when I was a kid, you know, if I was at a friend's house, it was... 99% likely that there'd be a big block of hash under their mattress or something like that. You know, yeah. it was just a lot of people's parents grew weed and it was just kind of part of the culture. And if you were a kid and you dug deep enough in parents, some parents' drawers, you would find other things too, you know? And so uh, combine uh, mischievous nature with curiosity, with a desire to feel experiences that were other than the norm. I mean, I think I just liked the high. My first high was Jimi Hendrix on 11 on my uncle's stereo, just listening to rock and roll and being taken to another dimension of reality, you know? And so there was that part of me that just liked that. And I think I still like that and use healthier means by which to get there, whether it be meditation, breath work, plant medicine, whatever. When you say um, get there, what do you mean by there? Get there, get to a place where you're in a witness perspective, being at one with consciousness, observing the phenomenon of your human meat suit experience yeah. that's there <laughs> yeah <laughs> the trick right. in life is to be there and be here all at the same at the time same and not time. have to leave to go there yeah that's the key but anyway so a, com- a perfect storm of just the availability the cultural acceptability growing up on black sabbath and cheech and chong records i mean it was just like duh of course you do drugs that's what's cool and um that might have not have motivated me to do so had I not experienced quite a degree, a large degree of trauma, you know, in a lot of things. There was sexual abuse and verbal abuse and, you know, just shit that kids aren't meant to experience that I didn't know how to hold or contextualize or heal from. And I didn't have 
it's not that I didn't have the support. I just didn't know where to go for support. And yeah. so, um, so I felt really uncomfortable in my skin and I just, you know, whatever type of intelligence I was born with was not celebrated or encouraged in the school system in which I was brought up. Um, I don't think of myself as, you know, exceptionally intelligent, but I was a pretty bright kid and on the subjects that I was interested in, I did really well on the ones that I wasn't, I just completely tanked, you know? So I had a really hard time in school and had a lot of behavioral problems and legal problems. And were you, all this were you the stuff. kid that the class clown, like the teacher would send you outside or oh, were you more constantly. like the troublemaker? Were oh, you the funny no. person or the Yeah, no, I was funny. I never like was into fighting and stuff like that. I just wanted to have fun and I, just the monotony and boredom of school and just, it just, it felt so, um, confining just sitting in a chair i mean i was just i was so full of energy and i loved the outdoors yeah so um yeah so how the you know i kind of went to the dark side was just through really i mean looking back kind of the fortunate circumstance of my life and that culturally and just geographically where i was at that time there was a lot of medicine available wow and i was a kid who needed medicine and thank god i grew up in that environment and it was easy to get a bunch of weed and i could just be high as fuck all day every day and um that's how i avoided suicide really (laughs) you know because i I thought about it a lot but if i could relieve some of the existential um, pain and loneliness that i was experiencing as a kid uh you know I don't. I think now I would have been thrown in a psychiatrist's office and probably given Ritalin or Adderall or sure. Well, you Klonopin were healed. Or who so knows, funny. Whatever, you, know. you were healed in a way, or or you your healing was um, catapulted, even though it was excessive. It was by the plants, like yeah, like marijuana at that stage for yeah. you was a beautiful way for you to really know what it's like to self preserve. It's a self preservation mechanism. Mm-hmm. Do you do you look back on that time and in, in any way you can be grateful for what occurred? Yeah, totally, man. I mean, it's like you talked about the soul contract. I didn't know this early in life, obviously, when you're 11. When you're eight, you don't know about soul contracts. Yeah, when you're 11 (laughs) or 12 years old, it's just life is scary and it can be very painful. And, you know, depending on your upbringing and the type of adults that are guiding you and where they are in their own evolution of consciousness, it can be really challenging and it was really challenging for me so at the time there's no way i would have gone like oh this is awesome there's a lesson in this it was just yeah. like god i want to die why was i born why is there no god you know it's just like pretty dark dark most of the time with punctuated events of relief or or experiencing joy you know going outdoors yeah. and i mean there were of course times when i had a great time when i was a kid but there were also um, a lot of dark nights of the soul especially later on as it got kind of more gnarly but um I think that I'm really grateful for the whole rich texture of my experiences because I'm beginning to like the guy that's sitting here across from you more all the time. And the things about myself that I like, I think are largely attributed to the rich history I've had and the experiences that I'm able to go through. So say I would have had a really smooth kind of middle of the road upbringing that was very cookie cutter and safe and secure and I would have been well nurtured and um, you know not gotten into the trouble that I got into well I maybe I'd be another kind of great man that's doing good things in the world or, or maybe not who yeah. knows you know maybe yeah. I would have been repressed and at 35 ended up married with kids and you know cheated on my wife and ended up embezzling from my company and going to prison or you know it's like you just don't know because I know so many people that didn't experience trauma as a kid or at least to a much lesser degree and um, they still ended up screwed up too so it's like I think that it's it's pretty interesting to have had so many different 
types of experiences and to have so much depth within one short lifetime of 48 years where I really have been pretty far out to the the dark side and also had a lot of very uplifting peak spiritual experiences and the like. And uh, now for the most part, other than just regular low level of anxiety that comes from living in a city and owning a couple of businesses and having relationships and doing the things that we humans do, um, by and large, my, my worldview is absolutely positive and I feel a sense of purpose and connection to uh, source energy to that that thing that created me and to other people and I have a lot of love in my life I'm able to give a lot of love receive a lot of love so you just don't know had I not experienced those things would I have the same type of life experience I have now which is filled with a lot of compassion and empathy for other people and I'm I'm very much guided and driven to help alleviate the suffering of other people in my personal life and um, professional work. I don't know if I would have that kind of passion if I didn't know what it was like. Yeah. If you, this phrase walk a mile in someone's shoes and you'll know how challenging the walk really is. Yeah. And walking a mile in your shoes, by the way, that whole area up there is so, it has such a mystique around it. NorCal, like how many films on Netflix are there about Humboldt County and Sonoma and all those areas up there what do you think it is that actually draws people up there? Because that's where you came from, that kind of adventurous yeah. spirit. Well, there is a lot of beautiful land there. I mean, that's the thing, the redwoods and just the whole San Francisco Bay itself. I mean, imagine the San Francisco Bay without the San Francisco there. I mean, it's just an amazing piece it's of so rugged. natural architecture and rugged and the weather and, yeah. um, you know, the the fog, the that dramatic fog and it's so green and... Um, you know, it just, I think, energetically, as a piece of real estate um, in itself, Northern California is just powerful. Yeah, it's beautiful. You know, and then there. you have, you know, you have like kind of the hangover of the hippie culture that centered there in the in the late 60s and even into the 70s. So that's also prevalent there. So it's, it's an interesting place. But when you get out in the boonies, like where I grew up in these small towns, I mean, you, I mean, it's not like it's a bunch of hippies growing weed. You know, that was a... A, a small fraction of those communities. It was regular people who have a couple cows and just down to earth kind of country folk, even though you're still in California. Yeah. I, I've really enjoyed being at your house, just like hanging out, having deep conversations on your show. And really all this is stemming and poking in and around mm-hmm. of this conversation about consciousness, our level of consciousness and the area. I even think back to a story you told about this, Rocky Mountain University, or what was it called? Oh, uh, Rocky, Rocky Mountain, Mountain Academy. Academy. Yeah, dude. So Rocky Mountain Academy, this is like a um, spiritual boarding school. Uh, but you were 14 or 12 or something. I was 14 there. when I got sent there, yeah. I mean, what was their level of consciousness compared to, by the way, would that even exist now, that type of Oh my God, they would be sued into the ground. Yeah, it was. they were very experimental there with their modalities of therapy so essentially rocky mountain academy it was a sister school of a a school called cdu uh c e d o yeah cdu that was um i think no c c e d u perhaps and that came out of something called synanon which was like, and it wasn't Scientology. It was this other, it was like a part of Est or something. I don't know. I have to research it again. I geeked out on it at one point. But anyway, there was this school in San Bernardino, California, way up in the mountains for messed up kids that were on drugs and you know juvenile delinquents and such. Their parents would send them there. And the school was so effective at turning kids around that they started one in northern Idaho in a town called Bonners Ferry, which is 
Um, north Sounds of, really exciting. North of Sandpoint. Big. Sandpoint's like a ski town, and okay. it's north of there. It's um, Bonners Ferry, yes, is a thriving metropolis uh, 30 miles or so south of the Canadian border, and it's an old logging town. A big river runs through it, and I mean, it's a bunch of loggers, you know what I mean? So anyway, you were sequestered out in the middle of the woods at the school of Rocky Mountain Academy, and um, it's like at that time I... <laughs> I had gotten in some trouble with the law. And so I basically got kicked out of the state of Colorado because I was on probation. And I was, when you commit like one single crime, oftentimes the way it works is there's a number of different felonies that they stack onto you, right? And so this is where plea bargaining comes from. So if you break into a house, which is what I did and got caught, then there's like grand theft, there's breaking and entering, there's larceny, there's burglary, all these things. And there are all these felonies. And if the court was to find you guilty of all those, you'd have a very long sentence, right? So if you admit to a few of them, yeah, well, okay, so I broke in, I stole shit more than $1,000 value, whatever it was, then okay, then they throw out the other ones that are more severe crimes, essentially. So I got in trouble, and, uh, <laughs> and it was in Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen, Colorado. And uh, I'd gotten in trouble and got put on probation because I never done anything wrong. I was 14, you know, and they caught me like just going ham in this house. And then, uh, so they put me on probation and then I smoked weed every day. So I finally got caught smoking weed at school and um, somehow I got back to the judge because this is a very small town. And uh, I went in to see him and he just told my dad and he hated my dad because they, I found out this actually just a couple years ago, they had had some kind of beef when my dad lived there when he was in his 20s and used to get in all these bar fights. That was an old ass judge who was like either oh, a cop wow. or a lawyer. You know, they knew each other from back then and had this, this rivalry. This is like a back to the future moment <laughs> yeah. where he goes back and yeah. it's the same principle. Yeah, it is, dude. <laughs> so I didn't know this at the time, but the principal actually just, was harsh with me because he was pissed at my dad and also I'm sure assumed some responsibility for my behavior onto my dad as a yeah. father or his abilities to, um, you know, discipline me. So, uh, essentially when I broke probation, they said, listen, we don't care where you go, but you can't stay here. The bar is closed kid. Like you got to get out of Colorado because if you choose to stay, the next felony that you commit will land you in a correctional facility, a youth correctional facility. And I was 14 and they would have um, hit me with all of the other felonies that they were kind of holding over my head, and I would have been locked up until I was at least 18, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. So that would have been four years in a you know a kid's penitentiary, basically. Yes. So, so you went the other direction. You went to this academy. Yeah, so you, so you could... Okay, so long story long, um, it was like I didn't want to be there at all, but I knew that the alternatives were much worse, and so I reluctantly agreed to you know stay there. Not that I had a choice. I mean, my parents were my legal guardians, and they put me under the care of this boarding school or reform school or whatever the hell it was. Um, but anyway, if you if you messed up at this place, then you went to a lockdown facility. There was one in Provo, Utah, and we were all terrified of that because it had like, you know, cyclone fences and gates and locked doors. And, you know, it was like a private kids, you know, lockup facility. This place didn't have locks on the doors. You could go wherever you want, whenever you want to go. However, it was so far out in the woods that if you dared try to run away, all they'd have to do is drive, you know, the six miles of town and they find you on the side of the road and bring your ass back. And they wow. actually had like kitty bounty hunters. If you did make it to a bus station or to the Spokane airport, they'd have these professional bounty hunters that the school would call and they would come track you down and bring your ass back to the school. And if you did it a couple of times, they would send you to a lockup, which was much worse. So at Rocky Mountain Academy, what happened was they absolutely brainwashed me. They had all of these different you had your own language there, all these different words that were unique, this vernacular that was unique to their system of teaching or indoctrination. Uh, you had virtually no scholastic activities at all, like no curriculum of 
Did they have you digging education. ditches, like doing hard labor? Yeah, yeah, building trails, sawing wood, caring for the farm animals, um, you know, basically doing all the hard labor that they would have had to pay landscapers to do. Um, and also a lot of really good times, you know, out, you know, coming of age, sort of a vision quest, you know, mm. and they'd send you out into the mountains by yourself and you'd stay there and build a snow cave for three days by yourself with no contact. And you'd have to just take care of yourself and a lot of character building things. And there was a lot of these um, longer form kind of seminars within the curriculum where they would sleep deprive you for between three and seven days. And then they would imprint you with all of this hopefully healthier information than you had. But really, essentially, what they were doing was teaching us all about um, spiritual principles. They didn't call it that, but there was you know, a lot of talk and work done around becoming an honest person and a humble person and mm. being willing and being of service and helping others and love and your inner child and all this. And I think a lot of the trouble they ended up getting into, because there was a lot of controversy around this place and it eventually closed, was that a lot of stuff they were doing was kind of like, primal scream therapy and um, gestalt therapy and a lot of these models that were relatively new coming into the late 70s and the early 80s and the people that were there being the facilitators of these group therapy sessions and stuff were in no way licensed or trained professionals they were just like into kind of alternative education and they were almost experimenting on on you yeah 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 every man there had a beard and wore corduroy and it was just like um you know, it was a little, little backwards, a little funky. Okay. You know? Do you um, feel like their heart was in the right place? I, you know, I do. Many other uh, alumni of that particular school refer to themselves as survivors. So I would be in the minority of kids that thought it was a positive experience. Um, but I know that it, that their heart was in the right place because it did transform me and change me. And I, I was at least sober for the two years that I was there, fourteen to sixteen. I did not touch a drop or yeah gram of anything you know and so it's good for that two years and it instilled in me some sort of moral code to when i got out i never would have thought of like robbing a house or stealing from someone or you know just at least like i had restored some kind of moral um, standards but i just didn't learn about addiction there that wasn't really part of the training there it was about like building your character and transforming you psychologically and also healing a lot of trauma. It wasn't terminology they used, but this is where, you know, being sexually abused came out and there was group therapy around that. And, you know, just talking about any negative experiences you'd have as a kid and really getting a lot, a lot, a lot of group therapy and mm. these things called rap sessions and having other kids in a almost um, sort of, you know, the group therapy um, model, you know, that's kind of, I think developed really out of the 12 step movement where, Groups of people are getting together, telling their truth. I mean, the 12 steps aren't the first place, obviously. You know, native peoples from all over the world have had yeah. ceremonies in which, you know, there's a group of people telling their truth and getting support from their um, community, however large or small it be. But that was the model there was a lot of group therapy, and I benefited a lot, and it really did transform me. And all the sleep deprivation uh, routines that they, they did, they would do stuff like, you know, I mean, just so many weird sort of exercises. One of them, though, is where you had to write your own obituary, and then they went through a whole mock death ceremony. Oof. And At fourteen, that's like pretty yeah. profound for the for the mind of a fourteen year old kid. Tell me about it. To write your own obituary. Yeah, and there were others where like they would get you in a really deep state of grief about trauma that you'd suffered and um, how you're. They had this one thing. One of their theories or kind of analogies was the chrome ball. You know that that was like your inner child, and then all this grime and shit gets all over your chrome ball as you go through these negative experiences in your life, whether self created or perpetuated from outside of you. 
and um, and you get tarnished, you know. And so the process was all about uncovering that ball. So in one of the deepest moments of looking at your dirty ass chrome ball and being in shadow your eyes would be closed and then someone would come around and they passed you a photo of you when you were like four and then you're like really getting into the pain yeah and then you're just like ah, i was once innocent you know right. it's heavy shit yeah. and there's just i mean most of them i don't even remember okay. there's just you know there's a few things like that i'm like damn that was heavy so you know in the context of would that be kosher today and just some of the disciplinary measures that yeah. they took i mean they would like send kids out in the woods in the snow and they'd have to work alone out there for a really long time it's like a really and, tough love approach but but i can yeah. sense that that a lot of it it has been used to grow you as a man now you know you went through a lot of other undulations of like being in la and lots of like drugs and coming in and coming out but there was one moment actually that that touched me and it was this moment where you were like laying on the ground and you were like kicking an addiction <laughs> and a cockroach. My Byron Katie moment. By. <laughs> yeah. and, and that was it. And I know we, by yeah. the way, Luke, we skipped over yeah, a yeah. lot. Yeah. However, it leads to my next question. Like, what actually is addiction? Like, how do you yeah. define addiction? Do you, do you think it's the Gabor Mate model where it's like the opposite of addiction is human connection? Or do you see it as something else? Like looking back at all those years, like where did the addiction yeah. really fuel from? Well, I still have a few of them, so I'm very familiar with it, you know. Um, the the filler of the back end of that story is, too, just I could say it very briefly, is kid gets out of the school, feels pretty positive about life, goes back to a regular high school, loses his shit, starts taking LSD, <laughs> doing coke, listening to punk rock, hanging out with all the trench coat mafia, like, you know, rough crowd, and uh, ends up moving to Hollywood at 19 and lives the rock and roll dream and nightmare until 26 and then sobers up. Uh, but my so de- 19 to 26 was the Hollywood nightmare? Uh, 19, no, no, actually, it would have been um, 16 to 26 was like the years of like, woohoo, we're just going hard. Wow. But then, yeah, I moved to Hollywood at 19 and then I, I sobered up when I was 26. And those are the years of like living right down the street from where we are now and just partying like an animal. How cool is it to be being a podcaster, being a professional, being known? as someone that influences others in a, in a loving, powerful way, being so close to where the addiction was taking place. Like that's got to be an interesting vibe. It's weird. Yeah. It, you know, it's really strange sometimes driving by certain corners and you're like, bing, and a memory flashes and you're like, oh, damn, there's a dark memory from that corner or a fun one from that corner and oh. stuff. Even right on the corner of Crescent Heights and Sunset down the street, which is Laurel Canyon, changes names when it hits sunset. And there was a club there called the Coconut Teaser. And this is probably like the first rock and roll nightclub that I really started going to on a regular basis and saw so many great bands there. And it was where I played my second gig as a bass player. And I had a fake ID. I was I was only, I think I was 19 or 20. I had a fake ID so I could go play these shows. And it was like this Mexican kid. His name was Manuel Luis Cordova. And it was a California ID I just found on the ground. He was like five foot six, really dark skinned Latino <laughs> guy. And I, I got into clubs with that all the time. And then finally one day I was playing at the Coconut Teaser down literally like a half mile from where we're sitting. And I walked up to the bouncer and I was in there all the time. And he one day he just was like, let me see your ID. I was like, dude, I'm playing I'm playing tonight, you know? And he's like, let me see it. And he looked at it. He was like, Psh, and he was a Latino guy. I was like, oh, really? Really, Manuel? Yeah, yeah. I was like, not having it. <laughs> oh, but anyway, back to, back to your question. Yes. Um, you know, what is addiction? I mean, it's a really interesting uh, um, human mm, phenomena to examine because I think it has a different meaning to every person who's had an experience with it. And when I say I still have some, I mean, I would say it's a fine line between habituated and addicted, but I'm pretty addicted to my phone. I think 
if I had a choice over it or if I knew, I know that I do have a choice, but if I was more aware of that choice, I would probably look at my phone less. I would probably refresh Instagram way less than I do. Um, uh, at night, I get an idea that I need something sweet in me and I can't stop myself from eating something sweet oftentimes and I don't want to do it. I'm doing it against my will. If you ask me at 2 p.m., hey, Luke, should you eat a pint of ice cream tonight? I'd be like, oh, no way. I'm definitely not doing that. That yeah. can't be good. And then there I am at 11 p.m. like, I'm running the store. I got to get some ice cream. You know, um, Habits of thought, being addicted to thinking, thinking a thought that hurts and I just can't stop thinking it. But they did it to me those fuckers, those fuckers. And I can't stop that thought. I mean, that doesn't happen to me very often anymore. Yeah. Thank God. But so in my own subjective experience, I think, well, what am I addicted to now? And it's usually something that there is a benefit from and a consequence to. And I'll do a thing until the benefit outweighs the consequence. But there is a place at which one arrives where the consequences by far outweigh any benefits and in some cases completely nullify any benefits that were ever present and yet you still can't stop. And that's the place that I have arrived many times in my life, but not since I was 26. You know, that one stuck. But that's like when you're doing things against your own will that you don't want to do because you're just compelled to do so, almost as if you're possessed or you're a puppet and there's a puppeteer walking you around saying, doing different things, you know? It's like when you're driving your car down the street and your higher self says, don't stop at the liquor store, don't do it, don't do it, just tonight, man, just tonight, you got that interview in the morning, and then the your hand just starts like being magnetically pulled to the right, yes. you know? And yes. next thing you know, you're in the parking lot, you're like, no, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this, no, 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 don't do it, Luke, no, 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 and then cha-ching, thank you, sir, and I'm like, ah, how did this brown bag get in my hand? What the fuck? You know, and then the guilt and the shame that comes with it. And that's, you know, that's really the, the thing that sucks about addiction, whether it's sex, pornography, gambling, cigarettes, sugar, eat, overeating, spending, you know, binge shopping, running up debt, all the different drugs and alcohol, the mind-altering substances, is that when it's starting to take hold of you, it becomes very demoralizing because you have like at least some degree of awareness that it's getting you. And so there's there's the shame that you're dealing with from your trauma and from your pain that is causing you to need relief, to need anesthesia of some kind. And then your higher self, at least to some degree, is usually going, you shouldn't be doing this. You're better than this. You're fucking up. And then the mind, the ego, the body, the things that are craving that relief compel you to do it anyway against the will of your higher self. And then that ego or shadow self or mind comes in and says, you fucking loser. You mm. did it again. So right there is when we yeah. need the pattern interrupt. Yeah. And that's where we have to bring it in. Yeah. That's, that's where we get to bring it in. And then that shame, that shame then self perpetuates and you go back again. Like, I might as well do it again because I'm already a loser. Yeah. I already failed when I tried to quit said thing. <sighs> there is a concept that I've read about in, in multiple like behavioral books, and it's the cycles of recommitment. And I, I believe they talk about it in 12 step. I don't know. But it's the time between when one is on the path of good and self love and, and not going into cycles of shame and addiction and loops. The shorter that time is where someone can recommit, then eventually those cycles of recommitment become very long. And for some people, the cycles don't repeat anymore. You just stay committed. So this shortening of the cycles of recommitment 
you've done probably multiple programs and, and Byron Katie was a huge part of your life. I mean, you even said that was what led you to the cockroach moment. Yeah. Well, it's just funny because her, you know, her origin story includes her having some sort of nervous breakdown and uh, sleeping on the floor and being terribly suicide, suicidally depressed and then coming to and having cockroaches march across the floor next to her. And when I interviewed her, I was like, you know, it's so funny. I had the cockroaches were like my spirit <laughs> animal too. Oh my God. In that sense. Yeah. Cause I, I did, I was, you know, coming to periodically in the middle of one of my episodes and, um, yeah, like lean over, laying on the floor in a living room, no bed, and um, you know, leaning over and just being like, "Oh God!" and seeing the cockroaches walk by, and then being kind of too apathetic or physically weak to even try and address the issue and get rid of them. Just Why? Because like, in that moment, what was going on? Were you like on the floor detoxing? Or yeah, you- yeah, and just really lethargic and without vitality, you know, and um, yeah, just kind of you know, resolving myself to going, oh well. There's that, um, you know. There's people have had much more traumatic experiences. That's the thing, though, about any kind of trauma or addiction is it's um, it's very much a subjective experience. Meaning your pain is as painful to you as their pain over there. Even though objectively looking at the things that happened to them, maybe some guy I know guys that have been in prison multiple times have been cut and shot and all kinds of stuff and then finally was like okay i give up i'm gonna get my shit together whereas me i'm just like yeah there's a cockroach but that cockroach to me morally i'm experiencing my own level of pain to the degree that that person is experiencing their degree of pain you see what i mean yes of so course. you can't really compare apples and oranges in that situation but sometimes because i know so many more hardcore people than me I feel like kind of a poo butt that that was my my moment when I mean I have friends that have such gnarlier stories but that's again ego doing that comparison thing but the reality is for me it's just that was just it wasn't like a cockroach freaked me out it was just that's a sign that this is where I've arrived and that what had been formerly a very thick opaque veil of denial and like no I'm just rock and roll man I'm in fun live free die young like that started to wear really thin and then in that moment it was like oh man I I literally cannot hide from my truth anymore my truth is that I'm killing myself and I don't have much longer to live or be a somewhat functional person in other words like next comes your cruising the shopping cart down the street with dreadlocks and a really bad sunburn and that's <laughs> that's the next i mean that's yeah, the yeah. next phase of evolution or you start yeah. using needles and then you end your life too soon accidentally or otherwise and so it was like just kind of the warning sign and dude just you know just the pain i feel i feel so much empathy for people that are in the throes of any kind of addiction because the pain of just the shame and the demoralization which comes with doing the things that you end up doing when you're in that world and the people that you're around and just the moral degradation and the things that you know you're willing to do when you put yourself in those situations that you would never do in your right mind you know the lengths that you'll go through the desperation that you feel and then um always trying to stamp out that pain you know so that's to me makes life really interesting because once you've been down that road it's just like everything else is fucking gravy i'm sitting here you know yeah. sometimes i get spoiled and i'm like eh, why isn't this room bigger i want to kombucha's flat yeah you know and yeah. so you know that you of course acclimate to your your um your altitude you know what i mean and i'm acclimated now to a much 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 higher quality of life but i still remember what it was like and i think that keeps me at least a little bit down to earth and relatable and i think this is why people trust you when i walk by 
a homeless guy that's 48 years old on the street, dude, I don't think like, oh, what a loser, take a shower. Why don't you get a job? I think, oh my God, Luke, that's fucking you. And I mean, I feel that. And that's on a, that would be on a good day. I mean, I, you know, most people that go down the path that I went down don't come out the other side and like, well, I'm okay. I just kind of sleep in a tent. What was no, different about you? Like, no. like, what was really different about you then to be able Grace. To... Grace was different around, about me. I just was blessed with a small ember of fire that was a desire to live and a desire to uh, arrive at a higher potential than I was. You know, there was just some like, grain of sand of self-worth that was like dude you're not you this can't be it you know it's like you, i don't know maybe being a you know a manager at the local auto zone or whatever you know like any level of yeah. stability or success and not put anyone down that's the manager of auto zone i'm just saying having even just a regular kind of humble down to earth life would have been a huge success at that point but you know here i was in hollywood trying to be a rock star i mean my dreams were way bigger than that be they based in an egoic need for recognition and fame or just healthy self-expression of an artistic ability. I mean, I wanted to go places, you know, and I could see circling the drain and just literally flushing myself down a goddamn toilet every day. And so, um, yeah, I think some of us are lucky because we just get that, that seed of hope and then we get the grace that just gives us that one little iota of reality that helps us see there might be a way out and and really going to that school dude that we were talking about i mean that was a huge part of it because i did develop some self-esteem there and i did work on a lot of my trauma and go through a lot of therapy and cared about myself a little bit and had meaningful connections with my friends like good buddies and we loved each other and you know i had um, a mentor there tim brace who was the you know like the director of that school and he was the only adult i really ever trusted um he was definitely the only person at that point in my life that i'd ever listened to he said hey i think you should do this and i go okay i mean I never listened to anyone ever yeah. i just couldn't trust anyone um i was too defiant so i think that really paved the way for you know, it took a long, long time to get back to caring about myself, but I think that's where I gained access to that, you know, the sense that I was um, worth more than just totally throwing it all away, you know? You, you talked about this seed of hope, which is a really cool metaphor. Do you think that seed of hope could be divine, God, consciousness, spirit, however you want to label it? Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter. What is that seed that you're talking about? And why do you think it was planted for you? Did it come from you or did it come through you? I think that my desire for God was given to me by God and that the God within me is looking for itself and to have experience of itself and that I got so disconnected from that that I would use other means by which to access that or to at least simulate that. You know, it said that... um alcohol in itself which is one of the worst drugs by the way i mean like yet, yet completely legal <laughs> yeah, it's and funny. pushed on every billboard it's on every one fucking of freeway. the most dangerous man i mean it yeah. really it makes you mentally ill i mean really alcoholism is i mean so much more serious than people realize man it is a really gnarly disease you know when someone's an alcoholic full-blown their whole family gets destroyed i mean it wrecks everyone around it so the interesting thing about alcohol is that if you look up the root of the word um, spirits is the latin is espiritu you know which is the spiritual realm and the spiritual domain and carl jung um, 
even wrote uh, letters to Bill Wilson, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, where he talked about his failure in so many cases to cure alcoholics. And he said that the only time he'd ever seen them succeed in sobering up was if they truly devoted themselves to spirituality or religion, and they had some sort of dramatic conversion experience that struck them sober. And um, he surmised that at the core of every alcoholic is a deep desire to feel and experience God and that that's what you're trying to achieve. And if you're someone who has that particular DNA match like I do and some of my friends do where like (laughs) the minute you touch something, you just pretty much start doing it every day, kind of, you know, what you call addictive personality. There are people that have a thirst for God, you know, and they don't know it. And you just know that you don't feel right. And that's why most people that that I know, and this isn't true of everyone in the world, I'm sure, but in my own experience, the people I've rolled with, the way out for all of us from that is developing a relationship with God, a God of our understanding. You know, it's it's a identifying that there's a power that's greater than one's own limited self yeah. alone. Ooh, each, I, I love this. You man. know, I mean, each one of us has power. We 100%. have will, man. The human will is fucking strong. Yes. I mean, look at Gandhi or a, a figure like that, Martin Luther King. I mean, people that have just faced- Nelson Mandela. Yeah, that have faced just massive adversity and overcome, and that's the human will, but there's also grace backing them, right? And so I think that the the people that get this thing figured out and get saved, so to speak, for lack of a better term, are people that identify, ah, I have a yearning for God, and that living uh, some spiritual framework of life is going to help me alter my perception of my life experience so that it doesn't hurt anymore, A. B, when it does hurt, I'm going to be able to contextualize that discomfort and pain as a lesson that's worth living through and surviving and learning from, right? So that I get past that level of earth school and I can move on to the next level where now I'm facing some other bullshit that I need to grow through that's painful, right? So it's like the spiritual way of life is the way out of that um, because it provides the grace and it also gives you a way to internally change your perception of reality so that you don't have to use exogenous forms whether it be approval of others or heroin or whatever like whatever extreme gets you off and gets you high you're much less likely to be at prey to that when you have a natural and instantaneous way to reframe your reality which is staying in conscious contact with a higher power and understanding and practicing spiritual principles so that in the heat of a moment when life triggers you as it does you don't think to turn to you know what i better drink over this or whatever it's like you go oh there's i'm disconnected from god that's what the problem is Mm. you know if i'm ever frustrated lost discontent it's just that i'm with ego i'm with mind again and i've shut god out of my experience and so life starts to close in on me and feel very scary and threatening and if i don't know that the problem is just that I've disconnected from God, then I'm going to go connect to something else to quickly change my perception. I mean, dude, if you yeah. if you took five shots of whiskey right now, the way you see this room, me, your day, Everything. this podcast, your whole life would dramatically change. I like it better without the whiskey, Luke. It's much more fun without the whiskey, man. <laughs> well, uh, well, and I wanna, you know what I'm saying, I though? totally so do. It's, whiskey's it's a reality quicker. shift. <laughs> whiskey's quicker. Wine is finer. But see, building a meditation practice slowly over years and years, doing plant medicines, you know, all yeah. of the books, all of the things, all of the podcasts that so many of us listening and, and recording now do, you know, those are natural and more sustainable 
ways of altering your perception and experience of reality so that reality becomes less um, painful and so that your resistance to these experiences and also your ability and tendency to create painful, conflicted situations in your life decreases over time. You know, you don't yeah. create drama because you know how to stay connected to who you are. And if you stay connected to who you are, there's just less drama. There's still drama. Yeah. Shit still happens, but it just becomes more sparse. I want right? to go back to this moment where you talked about the disconnection from God in those moments where like something heavy will happen. There's trauma. There's an event that happens in life and people forget for a second that they have a connection to a higher power. This is what I've been heard described as the spiritual malady where somebody forgets that they had a belief that was very strong at one point, that it was not life was not just about them. It wasn't about just their suffering. It was about something way bigger than them. Can you describe this concept of the spiritual malady and what that actually means? Because I've heard a lot of people talk about it, but what does that actually mean when someone's going through a spiritual malady? Yeah, I'm familiar with the term. I have to say, for myself, that would be having an orientation to life in which you feel that there is no purpose that you can't take in the divine order of things. You can't access it. You can't see it. You don't believe it's there. So it's sort of like um, atheism or agnosticism, agnosticism where you don't believe in God, but you still believe in something. You still believe in a certain framework. Oh, I believe that there's no God is a belief just like believing there is one, right? Or, Absolutely. Or whose name, you know, is it Jesus? Is it Buddha? It's like Krishna, people that say whatever. they have no belief. They're still having a belief that they don't have a belief. Every human it's being still a is run by their beliefs, no matter what you want to call them. Yeah. So a spiritual malady is like a, a spiritual illness, you know, and it's like, Say you take um, a human emotion or sensation like loneliness. I just I feel apart from people. I don't feel connected. I think that a spiritual malady perspective of that would be that it's not like I don't feel connected to people and I feel lonely from people. I feel alone and lonely in the universe. You know, in a universal global experience, I feel that as an entity, I'm not connected to anything and I've lost my tether to some sort of meaning or purpose. And so it's an existential loneliness, not just like, ah, oh, it's kind of a rainy day. None of my friends are calling loneliness. <laughs> right, right. It's like, I am fucking alone in this universe, floating in space, and the mothership has drifted off, and I'm just kind of like waiting to freeze over, you know? And um, yeah. that's a feeling that I know very well. And it's a feeling that there's, there is no God. I mean, there's no other way to say it. It's just... If there's no order to things, if there's no first truth or first law or first principle, then there's nothing stable to hang on to, you know? And this is really the foundation of Western culture and why, you know, despite its faults, it's been the most advanced civilization that we've had. And when I say that, that doesn't mean I'm against others or don't see the value in others. You know, it's like, if you love being American now, you're like labeled a racist or something, which I totally don't understand. I fucking love America. I love America I also too. love Thailand, Brazil, right. the UK. I love Thailand, man. I love know? me some Thailand. <laughs> Mexico. There's a lot of different places <laughs> yes. and cultures and, you know, but it's just, I think so it's great here. This so. is what I sense from you. You have this, you see what I mean? You have this part of you that's, it's this kid that wants to continue to explore. And, and a lot of men, a lot of men lose that. A lot of men lose really? that. And I, and I think it's because oh, I've heard this. Um, actually, there was an episode back when there was the Art of Charm, and there was a gentleman that was being interviewed, and he said the second leading cause of death in the UK for men over the age of 40 was actually loneliness and, and a lack oh. of brothership and band of brothers. I mean, of course, there's CHD, but then 
below that is loneliness. Yeah. And and really like where we've danced around sitting in here is is this loneliness epidemic, right? The, the opposite yeah. of whether you believe the opposite of addiction is connection, the opposite of loneliness is a different kind of connection than the opposite of addiction. Because with loneliness, like loneliness is a totally different recipe to really truly feel alone. How do you think that our society now can address loneliness? And like, what's your role in that? Like, how are you with your show and your, and your energy? How are you being a reprieve to loneliness? You know, it's funny. I don't know if loneliness can be relieved by listening to something on some headphones. I don't know. I feel like we're together with these people right now. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. it, it's actually interesting that professionally speaking, being a solopreneur now, right, and spending a lot of time in this room by myself, and even the majority of the work that you do on a podcast, aside from the actual conversation, as you know, is alone. So it's interesting that the work that I do connects so many other people to me in yeah. a way, but it doesn't connect me to them until I go to an event. Like I have an event tonight and I'll go there and undoubtedly meet quite a few people that listen to the podcast and they're gonna be like, oh, remember this thing, remember that thing? We know about you and I have yet to know about them. So that's that's a really neat experience because then like, oh my God, I'm creating this whole sort of um, subculture, a, mm. a mini micro. It fills your heart, doesn't it? Yeah, micro subculture and you get to meet them and hear about their experiences and that, and that's very cool. But I do spend actually a lot of time you know, by myself. And so, um, I think, you know, you know what it is, dude, is that loneliness is really, it's a frame of mind because there were times in my life when in those years in Hollywood, I mean, I'm out in the clubs every night. I've got all these air quotes, friends on my pager, I'm <laughs> going back. Um, and I mean, I've been at a party and I would just feel so alone and just so destitute and just so gray and numb and there's people around partying having fun i'm just sitting there going oh my god like i need to touch something physically with my hand just to feel like there is um, something solid under me you know yeah and so it's not about how many people you're around i think it's you know the loneliness which is a human plague you know yeah you need human touch you need human connection but it's also a connection with oneself and not abandoning oneself so Mm. that if i am spending time physically alone i'm not alone because I'm there having the experience of enjoying myself, experiencing joy within my own being. Oh, now I'm sweeping the floor. This is Luke enjoying Luke sweeping the floor. You know, it doesn't have to be anything meaningful or world changing. And when I can appreciate myself and really be there for myself in that sense, then when I'm with other people, I already know how to be present because I'm present with me. And so when I sit here with you, I mean, I'm looking deep into your left eye, dude. I'm not just like glazing you over as some vague entity in front of me. No, you're totally present. Really connected, you know? And so when there's the moments of human connection, then I really savor them, whether it's a group of people or one person, you know, it's like, I'm really here. And that's, you know, it's one of the biggest compliments I'm I've recently been given, you know, where I was having a talk with my girlfriend and we were just talking about how much we like each other and how great it is. And she went, man, you know what? Something so cool about you is that you're just really present. I feel like you're really paying attention to me and you listen to me and you're there. And I mean, it's nice to hear, but I'm kind of sitting there going, well, 
duh, what else? What, oh, of course, you know what, what I else mean? am I supposed <laughs> to do in this current moment yeah. other than be present? Yeah, but I got to remember there was, you know, a huge swath of life yes. where I didn't even, if someone said that to me, I wouldn't even know what they're talking about. Like, what do you mean present? Like, of course, I'm standing right here, but that's not the type of presence. It's the presence like, hey man, my heart's with you. I'm connected to you. I'm devoting my my time and attention to you and I care about you. It's a different kind of presence. And that that's the antidote to that loneliness is being able to be at a point where you feel comfortable by yourself and within that, then you can bring that comfort and that security and self-confidence, if you will, out to interact with other people. And you create two holes together, working together in an interconnected way rather than two separates, two lost, two lonelies, thinking that one is going to make a whole. You know, yeah. It's becoming whole yourself and adding to another whole. I mean, that's the goal. You nailed it. You totally nailed it. Like, I mean, do we, I don't phases. know whoever really achieves no, that, but that, that's the goal. And, you know, you get a little better at it little by little. There's phases where in life I have been so uncomfortable in my skin. And I know in talking to you, like you might be this present Luke story now, but there's definitely been phases where you weren't comfortable in your own skin. Oh my God. Right? I mean, like, sometimes still, of course. Yeah. Dude. This is the human experience, right? So I, I have this sense, and, and, and where this conversation is leading is there is a place in all of us that here in this system, you know, we have money as a way to exchange energy, right? So as we exchange energy from a monetary perspective, there are people that get challenged. Like it's almost as if someone's navigation for being their authentic self gets challenged, especially Luke, especially in media and podcasting and any environment where knowing the right people having the right relationships really benefits one person. I've had people that have reached out to me because I was thinking about the moment where you said you're at the club and you felt alone. And I've had moments just in doing the podcast where I know somebody's reaching out to me just because they kind of want something and I can feel that energy. And I think this is actually like more of a philosophical question to you. How do you as a conscious media creator stay grounded in an environment where at any point in time you could choose authentic connection or doing something because you know it'll benefit you the most. <laughs> that's good. It's such a slippery yeah, that's, slope. That's that's really how, cool. How do you operate in there? That's really cool. Because you can sit here and be like, Josh, I always do the authentic one. Oh, you know, no, like, man. No, no, no. I what mean, do you actually do? Listen, just the whole premise of growing a brand and marketing, I mean, just by its very nature, includes a certain degree of persuasion strategy there's tactics there's influence there's nlp there's all kinds of shit that's going on whether intentional or not to get what you want in your life right so i'm no idiot i know if i know this person and they know that person sure if i'm honest with myself i might give this person a little more of my time because i'm trying to get to that person i mean that's real talk let's be fucking honest about it yeah well that's yeah that's and I don't think there's anything wrong with Neither that. Neither do I. I think it's kind of the game we're playing. Yeah. It's a fun little game. That said, if one lacks the awareness of that, then you get into this vampiric, parasitic taker energy. And so to me, mm. to counterbalance, and it's funny, I never even thought about this, but you're making me think about it, which is amazing. You're a great interviewer for that reason. To me, it's about intention. And is the intention and mission in my life to just get shit for myself so I'm safe and secure, so my little ego animal feels rich, famous, happy, sexy, whatever? Or am I doing it to get the shit that I want and also to leave a mark and positively imprint energetically the world and to actually 
um, share love and caring and kindness with people. And I know that I care about people. I know that I love people. And I also know I want to be the next Tony Robbins or whatever, if that's my karma. I don't, you know, I don't know that it is, but let's just say I'm thinking really big, like the biggest podcast, a TV show, books, like be the guy, two million Instagram followers, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. And, you know, those ambitions I think are normal and natural. It's just like, what's, what's your motive and what's your intention? And if, if I'm honest with myself, sure, man, some of the motive is like, yeah, I want to feel valuable because I'm still working on my self-worth. And I know if enough people tell me that I'm loved, then maybe I'll be able to feel it. I mean, that's there, you know? It's really honest, man. Thank you Even for though, sharing that. Well, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just fucking, it's the way it is. Well, this is what most people don't want to explore, though, so thank you for sharing <laughs> well, it's, it. It's To me, it's fun, you mm-hmm. know, because these, the, these are the things that uh, come to me in a float tank or in a plant ceremony or doing breath work or sitting in the sauna or in an ice bath. Anytime I'm alone, I mean, these are in the theta state. This is the shit that bounces around. It's yeah. like applying self-honesty and really looking at your place, but doing it from a place of observation, not a place of judgment, you know? And that's the really tricky thing when you're looking at shadow or ego, looking at mind, is that same shadow will come and say, you got a fucking shadow, you're bad, you're a loser. And it's like, no, 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 you can't allow that to happen. So I have to be able to look, be as honest as I can, be as humble as I can, be as real as I can with you and with myself, but also go, yeah, and that's okay. So sure, if I answer one person's email faster because they have the ability to make me some money or make a connection and I blow off this other person for yes. three days because I'm like, eh, it's a lower value relationship or interaction on one level, that's fine. Yeah, That's perfectly fine if I'm aware of it. If I'm just a rapacious... You Take know, her energy. Yeah, I mean, if yeah. I'm just like burning through people and just getting what I want, getting what I want, and and I'll know that because I won't be fulfilled. I won't feel happy. And this... when I when I get the thing that I think is going to make me happy, it won't work. And then I'm on to the next thing. And this is where yeah. you arrive at the existential crisis of like, I got the house, I got the wife, I got the this, I got the that, and I still want to kill myself, which many people have experienced. And um, that's not a place I want to arrive at. I would like to arrive at a place where... I'm extremely satisfied with who I am, where I am, and I also have a natural human desire to expand and have more of that. I heard someone describe this in such a powerful way. His name's Brandon Hawk. I don't know if you've heard of him before. No, I don't. He's in Austin, Texas. Shout out to Brandon Hawk. Brandon! Uh, powerful coach, creator. I've never worked with him. I've just, I've just watched some of his content. Yeah. And he said, the energy of how you start any project, passion, or mission in life is the energy of how it will be sustained. The energy of how you start something is the energy of how it will be sustained. So if someone's like, hey, can I talk to you? Because I really want to get to this other person. And, and they're looking at their life as a continuum, then that same kind of taker energy, that same kind of pulling down energy, it's unsustainable. It's a, it's a scarcity thing. And I, and I right, felt it too. Right, like right, like yeah. it's taken, it yeah. took me four years to have this conversation with you. And it was a natural unfolding. Right. Like it's an it's a feeling of there's a feeling of friendship more than of taking when it comes to this conversation. Because yeah. I know that we both operate in a world where our voices are valid and, and, and people are listening because the same truth in us is the same truth in them. Yet there's still a part of me that just like wants to sometimes burn everything to the fucking ground and just be everyone's friend. Like that's really what I want to do. <laughs> and I'm figuring out how to do this human thing where we have yeah. business and sponsorships and all these different things. But yeah. that that's what I see in you, man. And I want I just wanted to acknowledge that. Like uh, the way that you've operated and grown the lifestyle is really movement of designing your own life. It's come because you had such a dark contrast. Like you had you went through so much shit for so long to be able to be where you are now. 
I just want to acknowledge you for that. Thank you. I'll take yeah. it. I'll take it. Yeah. The will to <laughs> the will to grow and expand, you yes. know, which is which is a gift to have. You know, sometimes I wonder if it's a gift or a curse, you know, because you look at someone, Joe six pack, goes to work at the factory, punches the clock, come home, watch the football, wife makes a TV dinner, you know, goes to bed, you know, none the wiser, right? And maybe doesn't have a very dynamic life, but is relatively happy and satisfied. You know, does that guy or girl have it easier than the renunciate monk who, you know, had his job on Wall Street and the Ferrari and is unfulfilled and gives it all up and goes and walks the Himalayas for the rest of his life to God. find God? You know, yeah. it's like, which is the easier path and which one's... Which is the more fulfilling path. Yeah. And, you know, which one gets you where you're going? And for me, I think the path I've chosen is the one where I want to break through walls. And I don't know for sure you get more than one lifetime, but I have a sense that you do. And um, well, this leads to the the last round of questioning about plant medicine that I want to ask. Yeah, you okay. You speak. So, uh-huh. you know, just in closing to that, I I really do get the sense that each incarnation of however many we get is just really really valuable, you know. And it's like, fuck, I was given a body, dude. My parents and creation gave me this really f- weird meat suit. <laughs> And I'm in it for yes. however long I'm in it. And this meat suit allows me to go have rich experiences and, and have lessons that you can't get when you don't have a meat suit and you're just living in the ethers as energy or consciousness, intelligence. So it's like, okay, I got this body for this amount of time. I got to fucking do this. you know. So I'm going to have, I'm going to make as much progress as humanly possible. And so in so doing, um, you know, you realize that the end game is helping others to make progress and serving, serving, serving is where fulfillment and true joy and happiness yeah. comes from. But along the way, it's fun because you get some of the spill off and crumbs from that too. It's like, oh shit, cool. I live in a nicer house now. I have a better car, like more wonderful um, partner and, and all of these things keep increasing, increasing on the physical plane, but it's just because of the desire to surrender to God's will and to know that my karma, destiny, fate is in better hands than I could ever make up on my own. Mm, the surrender, the awareness. This is yeah. like the recipe that I've heard from you. Being aware that one is moving in the right direction without the ego being a veil and being conscious about being of service to others. Yeah. Those two together. Yeah. Well, because if you get all the gold and you don't share, you don't get to keep it. Yeah. You know, so all the nuggets of wisdom and experience and, and even things on the physical plane, you know, having a fat superfood and herb cabinet, you know, it's like, friends, come over, like, take whatever you want, man. I'm not like, oh, shit, You God, have some gems in there. That supplement cost me 50 bucks. Don't take it. You know, right, it's like, right, I don't right. even think like, that's how I used to think, though. Or I'd be like, you took one of mine. I want one of yours, like a this sort of debit system with all my relationships. Oh, God, it's just so boring and tedious to live like that. Yeah. But to, you know, at least aim at serving others and being there for others, you you end up winning more that way. And also, I'm still totally selfish sometimes and don't think about shit. Yeah. I'm totally unconscious at times, you know? The way that you... And that's the great thing about relationships. You can have people around sure. you that are like, hey douche uh look what you just did and you're like ah oh, damn it you know i ate all the yogurt sorry <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the way that you shared i i saw your your video when you're at rhythmia the one that you did on instagram and i was there for the whole thing i just happened to be on it oh time. cool and uh the way that you shared man and the exploration that you went down i mean i'm not gonna lie like i i supported you going down there like i i made some connections and i and i feel so proud actually like i feel so much pride in like helping people go to this medicine because it's a big part of my life. 
I know that it's made an impact for you. But anyways, when you were sharing, there was a part of me that was like, I hope Luke's okay. You know, like I was, I was like concerned cause you were a friend and I was like, I hope he's okay. Like I, I want to make sure that all friends that I know that are going down there are fucking okay. Did you ever feel like you weren't? No, no way. I felt so connected and secure. No, it was fine. I mean, listen, having the background that I have to me, plant like psychedelics, plant medicines, that was never on the menu. It was just like, oh, that's that sounds fun. Good for you. I mean, if you told me about it, like, oh, that's awesome. I'm sober, dude. That's not in my wheelhouse. Yeah. I felt as though I had used up all my e-tickets, you know, and it was just like, well, shit, kind of missed out on that one. I wasted all those Grateful Dead shows, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, all this, all my psychedelic experience I thought were behind me, you know, but again, back to the intention, but it's something I was like, oh God, I bet that is cool to be able to experience consciousness in a different way and to have the the filter that keeps us within the third dimension here be removed as it is in psychedelics and you're in this world while in multiple worlds at the same time so to speak i like that and i just to be totally honest i love the feeling of being high you know i just don't like it when it leads me to the the dark path that i once uh, when, when you say high, you know? what do you mean though? Don't you just mean more awareness? Well, you know what high really is, dude. And yeah. at, at, at the end of the day, it's just a removal of the lower states of consciousness. You know, it's like when you get high, really, what's happening is not that you're going higher. It's just that the lower's removed, and you're just where you are. So, like our our capacity for joy and ecstasy and connection to God and consciousness is already high but it's just being in a human body with a personality and an ego and with all your instincts and the stories and beliefs yeah it keeps you from permanently accessing that and if you were truly in that state of kind of no mind no body all the time it would be difficult to function back in your meat suit so it's like i think that's where the plant medicines and and peak experiences like that come in it's like you get a glimpse of what's on the other side so to speak and one of the things I kept asking when I was in ceremony, I kind of forgot about this. I, w- I kept going, am I dead? Is this, like, I knew I wasn't dead because I'm laying there, I'm breathing. You know, you don't lose yourself like that. Or I didn't, but it was just like, oh, is this, is this what it's like to be dead? Am I dead? Is this, is this what it's like when you don't have a mind? You know, I was asking God, like, because you're off in this kind of, you know, you're in the ultimate float tank. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And anyway, I got all kinds of fascinating answers that indicated, no, uh, it's a little different, but you're halfway there, kind of, you're in between those worlds. But see, we when we're not embodied, then I believe that that's when we go experience those full on, and that's all we are. And then we're probably longing to get back in the body, which to me would be like not high, the opposite of high, right? Yeah. If high is experiencing consciousness without being so encumbered with our physical embodiment, then if you're constantly in this ecstatic state of being disembodied and being truly in spirit, in a spiritual realm without connection to the earth realm, you'd probably be longing to come back and get in a goddamn body. And that's probably what happens. You're like, ding, ding, Joe and Mary just did it. There's an embryo right there with my name on it in Cincinnati, Ohio, 2026, February 8th, whatever, right? Bing, that's my neighborhood. Those are my parents. That's my ancestry. That's my lineage. That's my karma. You pop in there and start to sprout into a new little baby meat suit. 
how cool would that be if somebody on that date in February 2026 <laughs> is, is hearing this podcast and they're like, that's me, man. Luke's talking about oh me on the show. Oh my God. That's totally, that is not inconceivable. Because these will live beyond 2026. That's so, you know, we just got to take care of the planet. That is um, so funny. That is not inconceivable. That's so, totally so, possible. Luke, like what? If you're listening, come back in time and save me. Oh no, wait, I'll yeah, still be here. If, if Instagram still off. exists, like hit up Luke right now. Um, <laughs> Follow me at Luke Story. What inside you of your intuitive faculty, like what actually allowed you to give yourself permission to explore this with 20 years of sobriety on the back end? Like, how did you say to yourself, you know what? I trust this experience is for my higher good. Well, having conversations with people like you, with a lot of people that I know and trust uh, to not be imbeciles or, you know, insane people that, you know, get it. And also talking to people about the rich history of plant medicines and actually curing people of addictions. I think that's the big clincher for me is that someone like a Jerry Powell can be, he was, I think he was addicted to Dilaudid or something like a really gnarly. He was one of the most intense things you could Yeah, really do. gnarly IV uh, synthetic opiate, you know, one of the hardest things you could ever get off. He goes and does Iboga one time and is just struck sober for the rest of his life. I mean, that's weird. And there's so many experiences like that where people have actually been catapulted into sobriety and into recovery from doing plant medicines. Then all of the research into uh, MDMA and into um, psilocybin and LSD and the therapeutic values of those drugs and the fact that it's not widely experienced that people injure themselves or die or or become addicted to those things. So it was like really understanding the historical precedents of plant medicines as they relate to addictions and whether or not they trigger someone to go back in and do the quote unquote bad drugs or not, or be catapulted back into the throes of obsession and addiction, all that. So um, after having done a lot of research to that end, I felt kind of safe. And then I really had to grapple with the self-identity of meeting someone and they go, hey, you want a glass of wine? I go, no, I'm sober. I'm a sober guy. What exactly does that mean? If someone takes kratom and microdoses psilocybin and goes off every once in a while and does ayahuasca and whatever things that i've done it's like well are you still sober it depends on mm, whose encyclopedia you're reading yeah how would you, you know? even define sobriety so yeah so i would still say yes i'm a sober person i don't do the things that got me in trouble i don't smoke weed i don't drink i don't do any hard drugs i don't do any of that and uh so I, I don't, is when I say I like being high, yeah. I'm saying that kind of figuratively. I like the feeling of being connected with consciousness, but I have absolutely no desire to ever go back to where I came from. And I actually don't like the high of those synthetic kind of, well, not that weed's synthetic, of course, but some of the other things that are synthesized or that are extracts from plants and things like that that are much stronger, you know what I mean? And so I had to get my head around that and just you know, be, take responsibility for myself and come what may. If I go do this and it takes me down a slippery slope, well, I've done so consciously. And then I also had to really consider um, set and setting and that I was going somewhere where people were professional, had the right motives, uh, where I wasn't going to be, you know, out in the middle of the jungle getting robbed and bitten mm-hmm. with mosquitoes. And, you know, I Having wanted a python to like, go in your sleeping bag. Yeah I, yeah. I wanted to have a relatively cushy experience. And, you know, um, some of my friends that are aficionados of plant medicine kind of scoff at my rhythmic experience because it was so sort of four or five star maybe and um you know have a spa there and all that it's not the norm from what i understand but that's what i needed in order to be comfortable and have that experience and i anticipate that when and if i go and have more of those experiences i'll be less concerned about the surroundings and aesthetics and only really concerned with the um 
with the intentions and the vibration and level of consciousness of the guides and shaman that mm -hmm. are facilitating the ceremonies, right? Yeah. So it was a combination of all of those things and also just really looking at my motive and making sure that my motive was pure and that I was being honest with myself, that I really wanted to go and um, access a deeper level of healing and to ferret out some of the stuff that still needs to be excavated and, and worked on and worked with because there's no end to that project. It's a yeah. bottomless pit of, um, of healing. There's no point at which... A human can say, "Okay, I have no more ego. Uh, <laughs> you know, Dude, I I'm the, not triggered by anything ever. My amygdala <laughs> is stop. healed. You know, yeah. it's like it's just a deeper level of excavation. And I also had the feeling, as you indicated earlier, that it was kind of, you know, I don't want to say a shortcut because I don't want a shortcut, but I wanted something like let's cut through the shit quick. I'm willing let's to get to face, the truth. Yeah, I'm willing to ride the fucking dragon, dude, and just like, oh, okay, show me myself. What bullshit is there still that needs to get removed so that I can have a deeper and more rich experience of life and connection to other? And that's exactly what I got. Yeah, exactly what I got. So somebody's listening and they're feeling like either, hey, I want to do something. I'm just not exactly sure what that something is. And it, by the way, it could have nothing to do with plant medicine at all. Yeah, But for somebody that is in the throes of addiction, maybe someone is listening right now or watching and they're like, you know what? I love my husband, my wife, my son, my daughter, my friend so much. How can I help them? Well, like, if what you do I have, actually do to help if them? If you have um, a bona fide addict in your life, man, that is a really tough situation to be in because everything that you likely want to do to help them is only going to hurt them. Because anything you do to make an addict's life easier is going to encourage them to keep using more. It's just a fucked up paradox of addiction. And this is how a lot of parents and loved ones inadvertently help to kill their addict, you know? Um, so for someone who is outside of the circle and the person in the middle is the one who's ill, you go to Al-Anon straight up, learn about codependency, learn about enabling, learn about taking care of yourself and be mindful that human beings also get addicted to saving other human beings mm. as a mean by which, as a means by which to escape their own pain and hide from their own shadow. And so there's, you know, a, a real tendency for people who have experienced trauma that need relief. They medicate by trying to save another person and focusing and becoming quite addicted to that person. And that's, codependency and, and all of that. So go get help for yourself. Save your fucking self. Put on your own oxygen mask first. You know, you ask for advice. I normally don't tell people what to do or be directive. It's not, I just, I say, I don't know, figure it out. But, you know, I care. Um, so that would, that would really, if, you know, if you ask me for yourself as a friend like Luke, be honest with me, what should I do? My son is doing this or my brother, whatever. I, that's exactly what I would tell you. And for the person that's doing it, uh, in my own experience and observing hundreds, if not thousands of other people that have had a path like mine, um, the only way out is a spiritual way. You know, self-help doesn't really do it. It's got to be God help, whatever that looks like. You can call it whatever you want, get it from any system. Um, if I had a good friend right now that said, man, I think I have a problem. What do I do? I would honestly, I would send them to the appropriate 12-step meeting down the street. They're in almost every place in the world. They're free. And um, you won't find an ulterior, mo ulterior motive in the house. I mean, of course, there's a couple of wackos here and there, but in terms of the organization themselves, I mean, it's just, it's built to not fail. No one gets money, no one gets rich, no one gets shit out of it, except you get to feel good about yourself for helping another person that's been down the same path for you. So um, I would say uh, rehab and then 
and uh, availing yourself to 12-step teachings and a framework of life, you know, learning spiritual principles, learn how to put them in your life. But I think if you're truly addicted, it's very hard to just quit on your own. You know, that's why for me, it was really important to go to treatment so that I could be set apart and just away. And I knew if I was at least 10 miles from the nearest gas station or something, I was cool. It was too long of a walk. Even if I got crazy ideas, I'm like, no, I checked myself in. And also just there's something about the finality of making that decision where you wake up that first day and you're like, oh shit, I did it. That was my realization. It was just going, oh, this is the real shit, Luke. Mm -hmm. You're done, dude. You're done. Like you're in a place for sick people. You got a fucking problem, dude. You know, it's that self-reality check, um, I think, is helpful in getting a running start, you know, at least getting your 30 days so that when you go back out into the world, you can find some people that will support you until you're strong enough to support other people. And then your life kind of becomes about that. But man, it's a it's a hell of a beast to try to lick on your own. And I've, yeah. I've never met one person that's been able to do it, you know? Yeah. Thank just, you so yeah. much for having me at your place today. For sure. Doing these shows. This has been so epic. This has been one of my favorite experiences in four years. Of, wow, of doing it says shows. a lot. Thanks, and dude. Um, it's a testament to who you are and and the space that you hold and the house that you have. And my last question for you, man, is is how do you define this understanding of the physical and the emotional? You know, if you were to define wellness, how would you define wellness in in Luke Story's life? Man, that's a tough one to quantify. I think it's the sense that you're getting better. <laughs> you know, it's just I ask myself, am I improving? Uh, and if not, what can I do to fix that? You know, am I getting better? Is my character getting stronger? Am I becoming um, more integrous, more honest, more real, more authentic? Am I experiencing the ability to receive more love? Am I giving more love than I've given before? You know, am I increasing the inputs and the outputs that are healthy and slowly over time decreasing the um, inputs that are deleterious to my well-being or others? You know, it's like leaving the campsite cleaner than when you found it. Just super simple. Making the bed is a huge win. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's why we put that in our <laughs> We put that as a step in our guide, in yeah. our morning practice guide to make your bed. Yeah. There's a reason for this, there's, man. There's a lot to some of the simple practices like that. But I think, man, just you know, having a, having a sincere desire to get better and, and being easy on yourself, not too hard on yourself, but just hard enough where you, you know, have the ability to get yourself back in line if you're starting to fall off the path a bit, you know, and just steady, steady, humble improvement, just day by day, month over month, year over year, getting a little bit better, a little more kind to others, to self, working smarter, not working harder. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful description, man. Beautiful definition. And um, we're going to be talking about you in the Wellness Force group. Wellnessforce.com forward slash group. People can find you at lukestory.com. Yep. And also the Lifestylist podcast, which yep. I had the pleasure of being on. We had a two-hour jam that on that. that and um, just thanks, man. Thanks thanks for being you and, and everything you've gone through to be here now. Uh, we see you. We appreciate you. We acknowledge you, man. So thanks for coming on Josh the show. Josh Trent. Thanks, brother. Yep. Thanks for having me. Hey, my friend, thank you for hanging out and growing with me today. Everything you learned on this podcast starts with your morning practices. So from over 200 world-class guests and counting, we've distilled the gems, the best of the best science-backed practices down into a 21-minute morning system guaranteed to increase the positive flow in your day. Get this free and powerful 21-minute life-changing system over at wellnessforce.com forward slash M21. 
If you enjoyed this episode, tap your phone, share it with someone you care about because that is how we all get better together. Supporting the show is easy. Leave us a five-star review right now from your phone. It helps us reach other smart and conscious people like you. Either tap your phone and hit the link in purple that says review this podcast or go to wellnessforce.com forward slash review. And this show doesn't stop here. We're continuing the discovering process in our private Facebook group. You can be a part of it. All you have to do is go to wellnessforce.com forward slash group and I'll welcome you at the door. Okay, now you get to go out into your world and live your life well. So until I see you again real soon, I'm wishing you love and wellness.